What he knew and that I didn't was that establishing a line of this magnitude on El Cap is so much more work than climbing. It's so much more hardship and toiling and fear and stress and uh, failure than it is success. And if you can't thrive in that kind of environment, naturally, there's a very good chance it's just not going to work out. You know, you're going to just be like, ah, what am I doing with my life? I'm going to go sport climbing in Spain in the summer. You know, I'm going to go do, do something else. But what I loved about highball bouldering was that it was a process. You know, when I walked up to Ambrosia for the first time, I was two years away from the day that I would actually do it. It took two years of preparation, of becoming better, of gaining confidence, of all of these things. And I love that process. And in the, what the Donwall presented was another opportunity to go through that process. It was on a whole new scale, of course, but the process felt very familiar. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it would mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I am pumped to have Kevin Jorgensen with me today, who's an American professional rock climber. He and his partner, Tommy Caldwell, are known for climbing the Don Wall of El Capitan in Yosemite, which is also the hardest free climb that we know here on Earth. We have an incredible conversation about the experience, six years of training and 19 days of living on the wall. We talk about his latest venture in building a uh, rock climbing gym. We talk about the nonprofit he has that aims to impact a million kids and bring them to climbing and a lot more. This is one of my favorite episodes and I hope you enjoy. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been excited uh, leading up to this. Let's let's just start with a little bit about kind of your story growing up and kind of what has brought you to today. Well, I mean, most people know me as a climber. So when people ask when I started climbing, my common answer is that I just never stopped. <laughs> I don't really have a memory of life without climbing being in it. Uh, my parents tell stories of me climbing trees and cupboards and fences and anything I could get my hands and feet on. I didn't find the sport of climbing until I was 11, but um, it's really just been a defining passion of my life that I feel really fortunate to have found early on. Was there like a climbing gym that kind of got you more active or were you literally just like kind of born with the gene of just finding something to, to scale and kind of climb? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it was inevitable that I was going to be a climber of some kind, but there was a local climbing gym in town that I went to the grand opening of when I was 11. And surprisingly, it wasn't like a love at first sight, clearly this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life kind of thing. It was a little bit of a slow burn, but by about age 13, it was pretty much all I wanted to do. I stopped any other sports I was doing at the time and started focusing purely on climbing. 
Was there a moment that you knew you were good at it? Did that happen between 11, 13? Like at what point did somebody say, hey, you're, you're kind of a prodigy at this. You should do this more. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like kids progress into the sport much faster these days than how I experienced it. I really had to work for my my skills. I, there's like certainly like some innate uh, talent and intuition there, but there's so much sharpening that has to happen when you're getting into anything, you know. But especially a sport like climbing. So I remember getting on the youth team and luckily having really great mentors, really great coaches that uh, helped sharpen those skills. And it wasn't until I started competing in the youth circuit, first couple of years, like very unimpressive results. But by about age 16, I started to win more and more, you know, regionals and divisionals and soon nationals. And I was going to World Cups, youth World Cups uh, over in Europe. And that's when it was clear that, you know, this could be more than just a hobby. Yeah. Is is there anything, um, I want to talk about the, the different types of climbing, but before that, is there anything kind of unique to you physically or to most professional climbers that that makes them climbers that maybe you had an advantage just because of the way you're built? I mean, climbing is certainly like a strength to weight ratio based sport. And I think I just got lucky with the body type that kind of fits that mold i couldn't play a, a high impact team sport that's for sure i just get tossed around <laughs> uh but i got the right build for something more like running or cycling or climbing uh, yeah. than anything else so but other than that no i mean that's one of the cool things about the sport is that it's really accessible to like lots of different body types uh, men and women you know kids of you know adults of all ages Okay, so now let's just talk about what are the different types of climbing, and then I know you were big into bouldering, and then Kevin Dahlstrom gave me the, the word highballing that I had to ask you about, but what are the different types of climbing, and what did you do? Sure, so there's climbing without ropes, and there's climbing with ropes, and um, you know, not all forms of climbing without ropes are deadly. So there's free soloing, which has the potential to be deadly for sure, above a certain height. But then there's bouldering, which typically tops out around, you know, 20 feet or so. And it's climbing without ropes. You have, you know, small three to four inch, we call them crash pads that you put on the ground. And there's famous bouldering destinations around the world. You know, some of them are in South Africa or Japan or France. And the U.S. has its own Joshua Tree, Waco Tanks. Bishop, California. There's lots of these places that for climbers, it's just like, you know, we flip through guidebooks. We plan our entire year around going at the right weather window to these destinations to go to go bouldering. And then on the rope side of things, you can sport climb, which is climb, you know, 200 foot cliffs with, uh, with a rope and you're clipping in the bolts as you go. And then there's more traditional climbing, which is typically big, tall, you know, multi-thousand foot walls where you're putting gear in, but also taking it out as you go. So it's a little bit more of like a leave no trace approach to the sport. Uh, a lot more adventure, a lot more um, opportunities for getting benighted and lots of other kind of um, curveballs thrown your way. But yeah, there's, there's so many different flavors of the sport that, again, it just gives so many different entry points for people to, to experience it. 
Some people only boulder. Some people only climb big walls. Some people only sport climb. Some people, well, not many people only free solo that I know of. Even for Alex, it's like a very small percentage of his overall climbing in any given year. But it's the one that certainly <laughs> captures the most attention. Okay, and so your your kind of um, expertise to begin with is bouldering, correct? Yeah, so after I won a couple youth nationals, I was kind of wondering what to do next with my climbing because you basically age out of competitions um, in the youth circuit at 19. And I had won nationals at 18 and I was just kind of ready to do a new thing. So I focused my climbing on bouldering outdoors. And that soon became a passion for what Dahlstrom was mentioning, which is this kind of sub-discipline of highball bouldering, which kind of rides the line between bouldering and soloing. You know, it's just like it sounds. It's like really, really tall boulders, you know, sometimes 40, 50, 60 foot tall boulders, where if you fall off the top, it's not going to be without consequence, like you enjoy with most bouldering. You know, when you're six or 10 or 12 feet off the ground, you fall all the time and nothing happens. Uh, with highball bouldering, it's a dance of ambition and risk and aesthetics and preparation. And it's a dance that I, I loved and one that I focused my career on for probably, oh, five or six years. And it's really what gave me a toehold into even making this a career at all. And when you're competing, is it is it a race to the top or how how do you win? What's what's the the way you're judged uh, for a win? No, it's a great question. So it's pretty similar to the format that climbing will uh, enjoy in its first Olympics here in about a month. So there's for competitions three different disciplines. There's speed, like you say, for time, and it's a standardized route all around the world. It's the same route, so people can train on it. And you show up and you go as fast as you can. Then there's the lead discipline, which is like a hundred foot overhanging wall and route setters. There's people whose only job is to create the paths that people climb up these walls. They set one really hard route. Whoever gets the highest or to the top wins. And there's a couple rounds that whittle it down from qualifications to finals. And then there's a round of bouldering. Um, so you get those three to... Uh, compete in. And for the upcoming Olympics, what's unique is that the athletes have to compete in all three, which is kind of like asking a marathoner to uh, become an expert sprinter as well as being an expert hurdler. Um, they're really very different disciplines that athletes usually they specialize in just one. But for this first format for the Olympics, there's only one medal for the sport, entire sport. So the athletes have had to get trained up on all three it should be pretty interesting to watch how, how come 2022 is the first year they're doing it do you have any involvement in this year's olympics maybe not as an athlete but as an advisor or somebody that's close to the sport no i'll just be participating as a fan um megan martin is a fellow professional climber she's going to be commentator for nbc for the olympics and she's been refining her craft over the last couple of years with the national circuits and some international ones and just doing an amazing job. So I think it was an obvious choice and she's going to do a great job. How many people, like how many climbers will represent America? Do you know? Two men and two women. Cool. I love it. All right. Let's move into, um, something that I think a lot of listeners uh, are anxious to hear about. I know I certainly am. 
before we get into your business ventures, and that is the Don Wall. So I I think I wanted to start by, you know, you were a boulderer, which is climbing kind of not as high. And then a gentleman by the name of Tommy Caldwell kind of put out to the world that he wanted to climb the the hardest route that kind of we know as as humans on earth. And you came out of the woodworks and said, I'd love to do that with you. So how, <laughs> how did that, like, were you just, you know, sitting on a couch one day and you're like, oh, I'll do that. Or did you think about it for a while before reaching out to him? Or like, how did that all kind of come to be? Yeah, that's a great question. We are an unlikely partnership both on paper and written personality but when put together turned out to be just the perfect mix for this project i think so what happened was i had just completed my proudest bouldering first descent to date it was a really tall really dangerous climb in the eastern sierra and sitting on top of that boulder i had the very distinct realization or awareness that I had pushed that discipline of the sport as far as I was willing to push it. So not only did I need a new project, I needed a whole new discipline of the sport to immerse myself into. It was like a whole new chapter that I was looking for. A couple months later, I saw a short film of Tommy's early attempts on Really, we all just called it Tommy's crazy project on all cap. It didn't have a name. It wasn't it wasn't the Don Wall. It didn't it really it was just this crazy thing that Tommy was trying. He'd get already been trying it for a couple of years and given up a couple of times. And really he was just throwing it out to the next generation. And I'll never forget kind of the closing scene. He's in El Cap Meadow, uh, you know, beautiful sunset looking up at El Cap, and he's just like you know, I don't know what it would take to free climb this thing, but, you know, if these kids that are doing stuff on the boulders and the sport climbs, if they could apply that kind of talent to the big walls, like that's what it would take to do this. Um, he's like, I don't even know if I'll be the one that does this. Uh, and if not, I just want to plant the seed, you know, for the next generation to come inspire us all or something along those lines. And if you've ever been called out before, <laughs> it's exactly how it felt. Uh, What's funny, though, is to think I might have been the only one that that took it uh, so directly or to heart, but I did feel that way. I was like, wow, like Tommy is, you know, such a pioneer in this sport. And if he's saying that this is the future, I believe him. So we had never climbed together. Uh, We knew of each other, but we had never climbed together. I didn't have his phone number. I didn't have his email. I'm pretty sure I sent him a Facebook message out of the blue <laughs> after thinking about it for probably a month, just being like, hey, this is a bit of a, you know, a long shot, but if any chance you need, you know, a partner on on this L Cap thing, I'd love to learn. I was like, I'm never gonna hear back. <laughs> <laughs> and I did for a long time. I think probably because Tommy was hoping that someone more qualified would reach out. <laughs> But when it became clear that uh, I was the only one raising my hand, um, as he likes to tell it, he was like, well, got nothing to lose. You know, at a minimum, I'll just I'll have a partner to help, you know, hike heavy loads and belay me on my project for a season before he goes back to bouldering. He really didn't have any expectations. And and neither did I, to be honest. Like, we didn't know what we were getting into. And I think that's there's something to that when it comes to really big projects. You know, this element of not knowing what you're getting into at the beginning. We didn't know it was going to consume the next six years of our lives, you know? And had I known that, 
I mean, I, I don't know how I would have reacted to, to that proposition. All I knew is that the guiding light of my climbing is doing things that had never been done before. So in many ways, this was a new canvas, but a similar art form, you know, and this idea of just putting up an iconic first descent on El Cap, that's like, that opportunity doesn't come around very often. So it was a reinvention of sorts that was required. You know, I got, yeah, I mean, we can get into it, but it was, the early years were tough to put it <laughs> to, to say the least. There's a couple quick questions before we get into those early years. The first one is you said you, 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 you climbed that boulder route in this, I think, uh, excuse me, was it the Sahara or, um, your final route where you said you were sitting at the top mm -hmm. in the Eastern Sierra, uh, in outside of Bishop, California, just South of Mammoth. Got it. And you said that as you were sitting there, you kind of had that feeling that you had kind of done everything in that um in that specialty that you could do is that because that was the hardest climb in the world and you had done it or was it just a feeling that you know I i've done everything i can do in this sport it's it's time to to move on to the next challenge yeah no great question so with, with highball bouldering it is the craft of taking something that at the beginning is objectively risky right? Like super high consequence with a high likelihood of failure. And there's a bunch of emotions of fear and stress wrapped up in an objective like that. But the art is bringing it down to the, your level through preparation to the point that when you start climbing, you enter this flow state and there is no fear of climbing or of falling. It's just pure execution, you know? So with this particular climb, it's one of my proudest first descents for sure. It wasn't the hardest climb in the world, but it was one of the hardest climbs of that height, I think, that had been done at the time. And what drew me to highballing for so many years was that flow state that you have to get into in order to be safe, essentially. You know, walking up to Ambrosia on day one, I've ever seen it, like... It would have been reckless to try to climb it that day without a rope. But a couple of years later, after rehearsing it a bunch with a rope and making sure that no holds were going to break and that my fitness was, you know, above and beyond where I needed it to be, I was ready. And I went and executed. But I didn't get that flow state that I was looking for. Like there was this out-of-body awareness of <laughs> the danger that I was in. And I lost a little bit of control over that focus and i started to tremble a little bit and that's just like the worst case scenario you know people often think that climbers are in it for the adrenaline well i was up there on the last moves getting some adrenaline and that's because something was going wrong you know that's the last thing you want when you're climbing is an adrenaline rush it's actually quite tranquil most of the time so what i learned sitting on top of that boulder is that i I'd simply found my limit, my personal limit for this kind of risk, this kind of highball bouldering. I'd found an objective that like personified as far as I was willing to push it. Harder and taller, well, maybe not taller, but definitely harder highballs have been done since then. This was way back in 2009. But at the time, it was kind of like, 
when people saw photos, you know, it's kind of, it's just such a beautiful line. It's just like, whoa, you know, it's just like, it's very arresting when you see it. So, and I felt the same way the first time I saw the Don Wall. You know, I looked up there, I'm just like, whoa, you know, <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that I look for when deciding what to commit to. Because I've learned that about myself. Like when I commit to something, I'm going to do it. And not rushing into a new project after Ambrosia in Bishop was really important, you know? And it, I probably took six months all told between finishing Ambrosia and really like signing up with Tommy to like try this LCAP project. But I knew it was where I wanted to take my climbing just because of how it, how it stirred me deep down. You know, there was, there's so much curiosity and I knew it was going to be such a path of growth and reinvention. Like I was so far away from being the climber that I needed to be to do this thing. But I knew that by just starting, even if I didn't get there, I was going to get so much better. I was going to learn so much. And knowing that early on going into it, I think, uh, was a helpful perspective to have. All right, my last question before we start the 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 Don Wall. You said like in those last few parts of that climb, you started getting adrenaline. Was that just a mental thing? Was it weather? Did something happen that kind of triggered you? Or was it, you know, just something that just came out of nowhere? It totally caught me by surprise. You know, I don't know what happened. It was not environmental. Conditions were perfect. It was nine in the morning. It gets the first light. It was January 9th. I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, the rock texture was perfect. Uh, it was perfectly warmed up. But something about, you know, just actually being up there for the first time without a rope, I just couldn't shake that very clear acknowledgement, right? Because, you know, I practiced this thing relentlessly just because it was so hard. I wanted to do it, you know five times back to back with a rope on, you know, when I was tired, just knowing that there was nothing that was going to make me fall on this thing. I knew the moves backwards and forwards. And, but, you know, the first time is still the first time of being up there without <laughs> a rope on. And it just like, and it, it, it was just, it just totally caught me off guard. And I was like, okay, that's it. And I think the reason it caught me off guard is that it does ride that line bes- between high ball bouldering which is essentially like tall enough that you're not going to die if you fall but you're not going to walk away either and soloing where the outcome is like pretty clear and i'm not a free soloist you know that's like a totally different mindset but if you fell off the top of ambrosia like there's a rock down there that you could hit that could certainly kill you depending like what orientation you came on uh came off on and so I think it was just like, oh, okay, I'm like riding this line between high ball bouldering and free soloing. And by continuing, like, where does that path go? And basically the answer was it, it goes to free soloing. And that's just like, wasn't, that wasn't my trajectory, you know? So it seemed like a good time to uh, <laughs> switch gears. Oh my gosh. I'm like... I'm getting butterflies just thinking of um, my fingers are sweating just for counting. mine are too. <laughs> uh, yeah, because when you're up there and you start feeling that, there's no, there's nobody that can really, or maybe there is somebody that can come save you, or you're nope. just kind of you have to get it done. There's only one way to safety, and it's up. You know, and and you 
<laughs> there's no uh, ambiguity about that when you're in the situation. And it feels terrible, to be honest. Like, that's not, you want to be in that flow state, just executing. You don't want to be observing where you are and listening to any kind of commentary <laughs> that your mind is having. Like, what are you doing up here? It's like, oh, did you put your foot on that foothold right or this or that? And so, yeah, I think I just had to listen to that and internalize it, you know, as much as I love that discipline. Um, just recognize that you know i'd taken it as far as i as far as i was going to and it's time for something new all right so you you send tommy uh, a facebook message and he reaches back out uh what was your first kind of day on the job with him i, I think we we talked about <laughs> na- naivety is sometimes our best strength and once we know what we're in we might not do it again but you showed totally. up fresh-eyed what was those first like what was the first day like so funny so we meet in El Cap Meadow. I've got like a like a spotting scope because I'm trying to figure out where the line is on the wall. You know, El Cap is just so big. And I knew it was kind of to the right of this and to the left of that. But part of what makes the Dawn Wall so improbable is that it's so blank. It's not obvious <laughs> where to go. So we meet in the meadow and he, he starts to point out the line. You know, it goes here and then here and then it goes over there, I think. And then I actually don't know about this part yet. We're going to have to figure that out. And then so we kind of get a general idea. I'm like, okay, now, now I can see it. Now they pointed it out. I thought our first day together would be climbing, right? Obviously, we're just going to like walk to the base and start climbing. Tommy had other plans. He let it slip several years after the fact. I think we were at a speaking gig together. That his He was so skeptical that I was going to be able to hang that his goal was to just break my spirit on the first day just get it over with <laughs> so he <laughs> so I could throw in the towel and he could find a real partner you know so his test was to put a 100 pound haul bag on my back full of food and water and supplies and rope and gear he had one as well and so did his I don't know how old his dad was at the time late 60s maybe and the tactic that you apply to a project like this actually is not to just walk to the base and start going up, but rather to hike around the back up to the top and drop in and kind of use gravity to your advantage and string rope along the line that you're trying to work, which basically gives you a way to commute around on the wall so that you can uh, practice and figure out if this thing is even possible. Because that's really the question we were trying to answer early on. Like, does this even go? So. I'd never hiked to the top of El Cap before. I didn't know how long that would take normally, let alone with a hundred pound pack. But I'll tell you what, it's it's <laughs> <laughs> it's not what I call type one fun. Yeah. Um, you know, it's pure suffering in the moment, made worse by the fact that Tommy's dad kept crop dusting me uh, for the entire <laughs> hike. And I just wanted to like puke my guts out the whole time. And he would just I'd hear this little giggle, like, <laughs> like, oh no. It was awful. So, you know, five hours later, we started hiking in the afternoon. It was super hot, just drenching sweat. You know, by the time we got to the top, the sun had long gone down. Beautiful, beautiful night sky. And I remember dropping this haul bag off my back and feeling like totally weightless for the first time in five hours and stretching my arms above my head and just saying, yeah, that felt good. (laughs) 
which is like c- kind of a counterintuitive thing to say after getting crop dusted for five hours and like <laughs> <laughs> you know schlepping 100 pounds of gear to the top of el cap but it was true like there was something about it was probably the joy of like the pain stopping but i think there's something to pushing through hardship in the moment and uh enjoying the success of it when it's over you almost appreciate the memory of the experience more than the experience itself you know and tommy recalls that in that moment he is like huh that's not the reaction i was expecting like maybe he does have what it takes because what he knew and that i didn't was that establishing a line of this magnitude on el cap is so much more work than climbing it's so much more hardship and toiling and fear and stress and uh failure than it is success and if you can't thrive in that kind of environment naturally there's a very good chance it's just not going to work out you know you're going to just be like ah what am i doing with my life i'm going to go sport climbing in spain in the summer you know i'm going to go do do something else but what I loved about highball bouldering was that it was a process. You know, when I walked up to Ambrosia for the first time, I was two years away from the day that I would actually do it. It took two years of preparation, of becoming better, of gaining confidence, of all of these things. And I loved that process. And in the, what the Donwall presented was another opportunity to go through that process. It was on a whole new scale, of course, but the process felt very familiar. So off we went, you know, the next morning, Tommy's, you know, next test was to tie uh, a rope around a tree. I think it was a 200 meter rope, throw it over the edge and say, this is where the last pitch and a pitch in rock climbing is just a rope length. This is where the last pitch of the Donwall tops out but it's all dirty. Why don't you like swing down there, clean out the crack and figure out if we need to, you know, add any bolts and blank sections or anything like that. So I clip my blade device into the rope and I slowly start walking backwards toward the edge of El Cap. And I don't know if you've ever stood at the, you know, on the roof of a tall skyscraper or anything like that, but lowering your butt over the edge of a 3000 foot cliff for the first time is a special kind of pucker factor (laughs) (laughs) i was just like oh my god it's so much air it's so much exposure your brain the first time you do it just it almost can't even compute what it's seeing you know the trees down there look like heads of broccoli you can't even make out one from another they just seem so far away it just seems like it's such an impossible distance between you and the ground that it just doesn't make sense. But in some ways, what it does, the effect of that is that it puts you in a bubble, a bubble of relevance that's really only like, you know, 15 feet around you. What's going on right around you? And so I started, you know, rappelling down and cleaning out the crack and you know soon enough i found myself doing these huge pendulums to the left and to the right trying to get to different crack systems to figure out where this pitch was going to go meanwhile tommy you know peers his head over the top of el cap also clipped into a different rope expecting to see me kind of cowering or like (laughs) huddled in the corner like you know scrubbing moss out of a crack and instead he sees me taking these huge pendulum swings 
you know, <laughs> back and forth trying to get over to some random crack and he's just starts laughing to himself. And that was kind of like the second data point where he's like, huh, like, okay, maybe, maybe just maybe, you know, he's green as a gourd, but <laughs> he can suffer and he can handle the exposure. Like I can teach him the rest. Rope logistics, big wall life, all that stuff can be taught, you know, but the innate ability to endure hardship and kind of just the mindset that you bring to a certain environment, I think are things that they can be refined, but a lot of that stuff I think is, is also innate. And at that point, had he told you kind of what he wanted in a partner? Like, did you know your role in that? Or did you just know that I'm going to help Tommy climb? Or was the goal always y'all are both going to uh, complete this route and do it together? Where we started and where we ended up as partners are two very different places. You know, the reason Tommy started working on the Dawn Wall was as a distraction from heartbreak, a recent divorce. and. So for him, his relationship to this climb was very different than the one I was coming into with. And I think he was probably just looking for anybody that could help facilitate you know, his relationship with this thing that was going to keep his mind off of this heartbreak uh, more than anything. And for me, this I saw this as a clear opportunity to kind of reinvent myself as a climber and I couldn't think of, of a better mentor than someone like Tommy. So early on, it was very much a pupil mentor type relationship. And it was one that remained that way, I would say close to the end. You know, it, it, it really didn't feel like, and it wasn't until maybe even that final season that I had even a long shot of being able to keep, with, keep up with Tommy on on this last push but you know there were a number of steps along the way you know if, if for the longest time i i just felt like a step parent to this project uh it, it didn't feel like it was truly quote unquote you know mine or ours but rather his and i'm here to support him kind of thing but th that too you know through various you know setbacks and injuries and and different things like that relationship too started to change over the years. And all of that was, I think, necessary in order to get into the mindset that I personally needed to be in to have a chance at this thing on that in that final season. Okay. So you 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 pass your first couple tests, you make it to the top, <laughs> you you're you, you go you go over the cliff, and I'm telling you, my hands are sweating. And Johnny, who's in the <laughs> studio with me, just showed me a picture of of the top of El Cap and that cliff. Um okay, and then you prepped for was it six or seven years uh before the actual climb? What did y'all do for six years? And then I also want to talk about how you map a climb that has so many little intricacies, like how it was all mapped and memorized. So so what took place over the next six years leading up to the climb? Really, the first season that Tommy and I climbed on it together, it was establishing exactly where the route was going to go, right? So which crack systems are we going to dig our fingers into? You know, which faces are we going to have to like go across in order to link between these crack systems from bottom to top? You know, and do we think this thing is actually possible? Period. Because uh, if not, like, let's move on. Because you've been climbing long enough and you, you know if something's possible or not. 
But what was so special about the Donwall is that it rode this line between possible and impossible for pitch after pitch after pitch, where we would look at it and be like, I don't know how, but I'm pretty sure this is possible. Like, I can't do the moves yet, but I think we, we, with enough time, we can find out a way. So at the end of that first season, we knew where it was going to go, but we had no chance of actually doing it. You know, I think we actually did go on a ground up, we call it a push. That's when we bring all of our stuff with us and we say, okay, we're not coming down until we either fail or a storm takes us out. And we really had nothing to lose toward the end of the season. So we went on a push and this was in 2010 and we got totally shut down at the crux and a storm came in and dropped, you know, six feet of snow, but it was a great adventure, but it showed us like, okay, we're so far away from actually being able to do this. You know, Tommy's mentality, and he's the most optimistic person you'll ever meet, by the way, was, oh, we'll just figure it out when we get there. Well, you know, we'll rise to the level that we need to when we get there, even though we had never like successfully done the hardest pitches before. We learned quickly in 2010 on that push that that was not going to be the case. So we actually didn't go on another push for quite a few years. You know, the middle chunk of these of this period was spent just practicing all of the hardest sections to, until we could do them individually because big wall free climbing is not unlike the tour de france you can go train on those stages in the off season but none of it matters unless you're putting it all together day after day you know when the race starts you know and it, uh, the finish line doesn't matter unless you've started at the beginning and successfully done every stage up till then so uh we need to work on all of those pitches till either we've had done them individually or, you know, felt pretty confident that we could put it together on the final push. And that's what that middle chunk of years was dedicated to, just unlocking all of these puzzles, you know, thousands of puzzles, tens of thousands of puzzles. And so, like, in any one year it, from January to December, were there certain times where you were actually on the wall and maybe other times where you were back at home, you know, studying it differently from home? Or, like, how did a year... How'd the years go by and, and what were the chunks of time, like, where were the chunks of time spent? We used to start in early October, but what we quickly learned was that it was just too hot, you know, it was just way too hot. And with, um, you know, the weather patterns changing the way they were, like precip wasn't coming to Yosemite until later and later and later in the season. So normally we would, you know, early on, we would start October 1st and climb until about Thanksgiving. Uh, maybe a little after Thanksgiving. I think in our final year, we started uh, either in the middle or the end of October, and we climbed till the middle of January. So really, there's no such thing as too cold on El Cap because it's like the biggest solar conductor in the world. So long as the sun is on that wall, the air temperature could be nine degrees Fahrenheit, which it was during the first week. And it, you know, it was too cold to climb in the shade in that scenario, but it was perfect conditions in the sun. But then later on during the push, it kind of flipped and we could only climb during the shade. So because friction is everything in rock climbing. So colder, the better, because you don't sweat as much when it's cold. Hence the, um, you know, three or four months that we would focus mostly in the fall and winter of the year. And during the other parts of the year, we would, you know, try to have fun with other forms of climbing and training just to get ready for the next season. Yep. Okay. And then just, it, did y'all have this all written out? I mean, you said there's 
thousands, if not tens of thousands of moves. Was this all written down and then just kind of memorized? You had a quote in our pre-call, but you just said, finding that one little hole that is better for a pointer finger than a thumb. I mean, when I think about that (laughs) and then I think about 3,000 feet, I'm just thinking like, it's almost overwhelming how many things you have to get memorized and comfortable with. We may have written down a handful of sequences here or there, but basically the strength that I brought to the team was my bouldering background. And the difference between that background and Tommy's, I mean, Tommy has a bouldering background too, but you know, the 10 years leading up to the Dawn Wall, he spent almost entirely on El Cap. So he was more comfortable in that environment than anybody in the world which is like, can't ask for anything better in a partner. But what I brought was this bouldering background, which with bouldering, you approach your climbing like a surgeon. There's no detail too small, you know, and you memorize every little nuance of, of the rock itself, of body position, of sequences. So I basically memorized all of the important sequences from bottom to top. Some of the pitches are so easy that that's not required you can just use your intuition and figure it out but for the hardest pitches of which the first 20 like pretty much all of them are hard you just gotta you know through repetition remember what to do you know and all the way down to which little ripple of rock is for your left big toe at this point or your right big toe at this point and how you grab this and how you grab that. And yeah, that's, that's the creativity and the beauty and the problem solving aspect that makes climbing so interesting. I think. Did you and Tommy climb everything the exact same way or did you, were there times where you might do it differently than he did it? I would say we shared sequences for about 95% of the climb. He's about an inch taller and with an inch longer ape index than I do. So there would be there would be times when we grabbed the the rock with our hands in the exact same sequence, but what we did with our feet looked different just because he was a little bit taller. It's amazing what one inch of difference can do. But the biggest difference, that five percent, was in the middle of the wall, there's this really dramatic eight foot blank section that you have to jump across pitch 15 and uh this is actually right after pitch 15 this is pitch 16 and when i saw this in the first clip after ambrosia before i reached out to tommy it just looked like the most absurd thing you know he's 1500 feet off the ground doing a move that you would see on the boulders you know you're just like this exists on El Cap. like this looks absolutely insane that move looks impossible and early on, even that first season, we didn't know if that jump was possible. It was one of those things we had to figure out. Like, are we wasting our time? Or is this like, can we actually stick this move? So with my bouldering background, I was like, I'm all about it. Like, I want to tie in and try this thing. And I, I did end up sticking that that jump on the first season in uh, 2010. And I ended up doing pitch 16 using that method. But for whatever reason... Tom, it, Tommy just couldn't get that move to click consistently. I think he did it a handful of times over the years, but you know, a handful of times over you know thousands of repetitions. It's just the odds are not that good um, when you're on the final push. So what he ended up pioneering was like this 
we call it the loop pitch where he actually like found a way to climb around it and the the movie does a good way of explaining this but he he found a really creative solution that got him to the same point that he you know he needed to be at the top of pitch 16 but by making this huge roundabout he did like 250 feet of climbing to avoid eight feet of jumping across uh, but it worked so i never even entertained trying the loop pitch uh when he started working on it i was like f that like no way <laughs> like i'm just gonna take the the one move wonder over you know a 514 down climb so but i think it was it was really helpful that we had super similar sized bodies and styles because we could share you know in climbing called the beta it's like the sequence of where you put your hands and your feet right okay so then six seven years go by you've you've done all the prep work and at what point was did you guys look at each other and you're like okay this is it's time we need to we need to now go do it was there a moment there was so the season prior to the one that we did it that was the year that tommy did both for pitch 14 and pitch 15 kind of individually um and those were the last two pitches that he hadn't done on the entire thing so for him he knew he was physically capable of climbing this route in its component pieces would he be able to sustain that effort on a push like to be determined but individually he knew he could do all the individual pieces so going into the what became the last season i i know he had like this is the year kind of mindset right because he he tasted it i had a long way to go really long way to go of the first 20 pitches i still hadn't done 12 14 15 16 17 <laughs> 18 19 and 20 like you know eight of the hardest pitches i hadn't put them together yet so i was going to have to do that on the final push i had done them in big sections or even overlapping sections and but i didn't have that same muscle memory and confidence that that tommy did going into it but i knew that this season because where tommy left off the previous season we were going for a push and he was shooting to do it so that was kind of the mindset going into the the last season was we're gonna we're gonna get prepped we're gonna work everything out and then when we get our weather window we're gonna go for a push and at that point had it been determined between the two of y'all that the goal was for both of y'all to complete the entire wall yeah that was our goal from the beginning which is like the hardest form of big wall free climbing called team free where both people are doing each pitch just because you know, there's twice as many chances for failure to occur. Yeah. So the the total climb took 19 days. Um, I want to talk about the intricacies of that, but let's just talk real quick about the prep. Um, you had mentioned you pack 3,000 pounds of gear and food, and and you literally lived on the side of the wall, hanging from the wall for for 20 days. So can you just describe kind of that whole experience of living on the side of a wall and you know sleeping thousands of feet above the ground and 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 how everything is prepped <laughs> to make this happen absolutely so you know developing our logistical strategy you know that is something that evolved over the years as well normally the way you climb a big wall is that you climb a pitch your partner climbs a pitch and then you haul all your shit up behind you and then you repeat that process 30 some odd times but the process of hauling all that gear to stay alive on a wall for you know we thought 12 days ended up being 19 that becomes almost more physically exhausting than the rock climbing itself 
So what we devised was almost like a mountaineering siege tactic, like very old school. There's lots of room for style improvements on our ascent. Tommy and I both recognize that, but it is the style that, you know, we felt gave us the best odds of success, which was we're going to put a base camp in the middle of the wall and that's going to be our spot. And we're going to stay in that base camp as long as possible. We only ended up spending one night outside of that base camp. So we climbed, you know, day one, for example, we climbed the first five pitches. Then we hopped on those fixed ropes and commuted up with our ascenders up the ropes to our base camp, slept, came back down to where we left off at the top of pitch five and kept going. So sometimes we would be commuting up to our base camp, but as we got higher and higher on the wall, we would actually be commuting down to our base camp and then jumaring back up to where we left off. And then two days before we topped out, we brought a small hall bag with two sleeping bags and some cooking stuff. We slept on a natural ledge about 300 feet below the summit. And then the following day, we topped out. So at that base camp, we had three portal edges. And a portal edge, if you look up a photo of it, it's just like a cot, essentially, that is hangs suspended from the wall about six feet wide by, you know, four feet in depth. And it's, it's just your little tent. You know, it's got a, a weatherproof covering on it. You can open doors on either side. And um, when you zip it up at night, you wouldn't know that you weren't on the ground. <laughs> and are you like so, locked in? So where I, I roll around at yeah. night. So at night, I, you know, I don't recommend this practice, but just for comfort, we would. And the fact that we were like zipped inside a tent, so you literally couldn't roll off the edge of the portal edge, even if you tried. So we would just take a little piece of webbing and just kind of girth hitch it around our waist um, and just have a super long leash so that we could take our harness off and just, you know, be a little bit more comfortable. So we would do, we would use that system um, at night and then put our harness back on in the morning when we were shuffling around, you know, digging stuff out of haul bags, you know, cooking equipment and stuff like that. But yeah, that's basically the the way we did it and just, you know, we pre-hauled everything with a lot of help, all that stuff to this one point, basically smack dab in the middle of the wall so that everything was staged and ready to go. And we could, to, you know, to the best of our abilities, just focus on the climbing and like as little of the, you know, the big wall toiling uh, that usually goes with, with surviving on a wall up there. And that tactic ended up working out super well for us. Yep. All right. I don't want to go through all the pitches, but for anybody that hasn't watched the Dawn Wall yet, uh, you're going to watch it after this. But I want to talk about pitch 15 for a second. Sure. That was one where Tommy got through it and you were, um, it took you a few days. So can you just walk me through why that was the one that kind of got you? And then what eventually, you know, I know Tommy kept going, but he said, I'm not going any further until until Kevin does this, just that whole experience. It's such a great part of the documentary and, uh, you know, true resilience. Man, I'm so grateful for that experience. One thing I'll start by saying is that we went into this, like knowing it was going to be hard, right? That's kind of like why we do it. We knew that, uh, this was going to be the biggest challenge we have faced as climbers. You know, it's, uh, it's our Super Bowl. Normally in elite rock climbing, whether or not you succeed on any given day 
is pretty trivial because you just come back the next day, right? Or you just come back the next season. You don't do the boulder, who cares? Come back another time. You know, the headline will just come out some other time. But with big wall free climbing, it introduces this element of consequence around the timing because you can't stay up there forever. And you've prepped your entire season, your entire year around being on this wall at this time in the perfect weather window with your fitness peaking and you've got all your supplies up there. So all of a sudden, it starts to matter a lot more (laughs) whether or not you succeed on any given day. And it introduces this element of pressure that you don't normally feel when you're you have a sport climbing project or you have a bouldering project. Uh, sure, you're disappointed when you don't do those, but it really doesn't matter if you do it on Saturday or you do it on Monday. But the clock's ticking when you're on a big wall. So we, the first week, went almost too well. Every day we had a menu of pitches you know, that we had to go consume. Day one was one through five. Day two, we did six, seven, eight, nine. Then we took a rest day in a windstorm. Uh, The fourth climbing day was pitch 10. Uh, The next day was pitch 11 and so on and so forth. By the seventh day, we were at the meat of the route. The day prior, we had actually done pitch 14, which is technically harder than pitch 15 but these two stretches of rock are just like trying to climb from right to left across 400 feet of porcelain there are no cracks to grab it's just like take a concrete road and just tilt it dead vertical and that's what you have to go across it's just like blank and that's i mean what makes it so hard is that the, the crack system that we had been following however faint petered out And then 400 feet to the left, a different one opened up and we had to get over there, you know? So we're just these two pitches of of porcelain that you have to go across. We spent probably the majority of our days of prep throughout the years on those two pitches because they were just so far over our head. So we were riding high because on day six, we had done pitch 14, both of us within a handful of tries. I think we even had a leisurely dinner before like nine o'clock, you know, like, which was unheard of. We, there, it was not uncommon as it, as it soon began to unfold to climb till 11 or 12 at night. And the reason is, is we don't start climbing until the shade hits at 4 PM. So Tommy gets across pitch 15. And on my first night of attempts, I gave it four attempts. I didn't do it. One of the things that made this pitch particularly hard is just how sharp it is. Like it's just so your hang the holds you're hanging on to are just so small, so sharp. And on the second day, I think I mentioned earlier, the first week we were on the wall, it was like nine degrees Fahrenheit the entire time. It was just really, really cold. And when when it's that cold, the calluses on your fingers get really brittle. And when you're grabbing really sharp pieces of rock, it makes it very easy for you to rip holes in your in your calluses, which is what happened on my right index finger. I got a deep, deep rip in my finger. So with all the pitches leading up to pitch 14 and including pitch 14, I was able to do those with that finger taped up. But because the climate was so rough, that cut didn't heal. You know, I still was climbing with tape on and I just couldn't get the friction I needed 
on pitch 15 with that finger all taped up. So that was one of the main things that really held me back early on was just this these cuts that I had in my, my index and my middle finger. So I climbed with it taped on day seven, didn't do it, gave it a couple of tries on day eight, didn't do it, decided to take a rest day. And so on went the dance. I forget the exact sequence at this point of like how many rest days and in what order. But at one point, I ended up taking two consecutive rest days for the purpose of just letting those cuts heal. I just felt like I didn't really have a chance with those fingers taped up. I needed at least one of those cuts to heal up. And at this point, the pressure is mounting, right? We, We packed for 12 days. I've been stuck now for five days. I'm resting on day five. I'm resting on day six of of this kind of battle with pitch 15. And I really felt like day seven had to be it because if I couldn't do it on two days rest with good skin, like what else do I need? You know? And the other part is, you know, we've been up here a really long time. It's January. A storm could come in at any time. I don't want to hold Tommy back, although I know he wants to do this together. And I felt like it just had to be the day. And I don't know that that's true, but what the more important thing is that it, it put me in the mindset that I needed to be in to perform. You know, sometimes you have to be in a position to fail, to discover what you're capable of. And by telling myself that if I don't do it today, that's it, it gave me one outcome, which was to succeed. You know, because as I sat in that portal edge for those, you know, days, those some of the longest nights of my life, you know, just sweating it out, like, am I going to do this or am I going to be the guy that almost climbed the Dawn Wall for the rest of my life? It was that outcome, the idea of living with that memory of almost that was more motivating than any form of imagining what the celebration on top might be you know, or the satisfaction of success. It was much more of living with the failure that, at least for my mindset, this like, ah, I just couldn't live with that, you know? So, and having gone through so many disappointments of failure on that pitch, you know, that you can only ride that roller coaster so many times before your confidence doesn't fully recover. You know, you can, you can show up, you can put on the face, but unless you're confident, like truly confident that you're going to do it, this try. It's very hard to be in the right mindset. And I didn't know how many more of those roller coasters I could endure. You know, how many beatdowns can you take of giving it four tries, climbing till 12 at night, one in the morning, not doing it, having to take more rest days, holding up the team. Like it just felt like so much pressure. And at this point, there's a whole media circus around the climb that just happened on its own. It was totally insane. So like the whole world was watching as well, which was like not helpful. <laughs> but I'll never forget waking up on January 9th, 2015, and uh, it was overcast, which it hadn't been the entire time we were up there, which meant I got to climb in the day. Most of my attempts over the past week were at night. And um, I remember tying in and, and chalking up and just feeling like I was right where I wanted to be. You know, sometimes you're showing up for a test that you're dreading because you're not prepared and you don't want to take it. And other times you're, you walk in and you're like, give it to me. I'm ready. You know, and standing on the edge of that portal edge, I just felt like I was right where I wanted to be. And that flow state that I didn't find on Ambrosia, I just dropped into effortlessly 
And as I climbed from right to left, like my mind turned off and I just executed and kind of snapped out of it as I was getting to the anchors and couldn't really believe it. You know, I'm so glad there was a camera there to capture it because so much of it is a blur. I was just, that part of my brain was not there to to make a memory out of what I was going through and what I was doing. Yeah, just by going into it, knowing that it was going to be hard when we didn't know what form the hardship was going to take or in what degree or caliber it was going to arrive. But when it did, it made it so much easier to be like, all right, game on. Like, this is what I signed up for. You know, like, of course, it's going to be hard. <laughs> that first week went so well. You know, we just did everything you're supposed to do each day that when the setback started to come, uh, we were able to just kind of bear hug that shit and be like, all right, let's go. You know, this is this is what we're here for. We know that's it's supposed to be hard. Oh, dude, I, I love it. Uh, one more just like one more question on pitch 15. Was it a certain spot in the the route that was causing you fits that you were same spot same. every time okay <clears throat> same sequence every time so you know what the breakthrough was and i don't tell this story very often but it's kind of counterintuitive um you'd think that like you know like a gymnast might visualize their final routine you know in order to instill confidence i was doing quite the opposite i actually asked the film crew all of our best friends up there filming we'd climbed with and worked with for our entire careers i asked them to edit together every failed attempt uh up to that point and sent to send me a password protected vimeo link so on my two rest days prior to doing it i was watching that video over and over again trying to figure out what was going wrong you know because i was getting the same outcome and it's not like I knew this sequence didn't work because it's worked, it had worked successfully in the past, which is why I was using it. But I felt that, okay, I know this works and I could probably do it that way, but I've fallen 10 times in the exact same spot now. My body almost expects to fall at that point because it's going through the same physical routine over and over again, and then it ends up hanging on the rope every single time. So what I decided to do was change up i i had a basically a backup sequence and i didn't change anything about my hands it was all about my feet i changed the, the way i arranged my feet through that crux sequence so the morning before i did it i went up there with my climbing shoes went straight over to the crux and just played with that foot sequence and i was like okay i'm gonna switch you know it's like bottom of the ninth but i'm gonna like totally change my approach on this for two reasons one i felt like my body needed to kind of be shook like a snow globe you know as far as its expectation of what it was about to go through and two i I, while it was more moves in total i felt like it did actually give me a better chance of success so and i I do think that made all the difference getting to that sequence all of a sudden it felt like i was doing something totally new it wasn't something like oh this is where you tip over backwards this is where this foot slips off it was being asked to do something that it wasn't used to so it was able to just show up in a new way and that i think was a was a big piece of the puzzle and i'm so glad that uh i had the wherewithal to like question question the method of success that we assume i assumed at the beginning was going to be the way and was open to it looking a different way you know and that's a lesson that i've i've learned before in my climbing and i had to like relearn and, and apply while i was up there and i 
relearn it and apply it in my life uh, to this day and going forward as well. Yep. All right. Last question on the Don wall, and then we'll move into a few other things you're working on. But you mentioned, and I know this was a, you know, a part of the, the documentary, all of a sudden the media caught on to it. And it was, you know, if you watch the documentary, it's on every news station in the world and people are starting to gather at the bottom. How did you know that the whole world was now watching you? Did somebody tell you that or did, did they try not to tell you like it? And did that screw with your psyche at all? It was a conversation we had to have together on the wall. So what happened was John Branch from the New York Times, he's a really talented sports writer, but he doesn't just write about like team sports. He writes amazingly for the paper, but he also writes these novel, these books about different oddball characters in sports that um, you wouldn't, you, you'd never think to stop and pause and inquire about, you know, who's behind this person, whether that's a rodeo cowboy or a couple rock climbers on a wall or a, you know, a, a hockey player or a, this snowboarding athlete. And he just he shines light on in just such a great way these seemingly obscure sports and the people behind them. So he was really well suited to do this story justice, which so many news stations didn't. But John Branch reached out. He asked for an interview. We were on the wall. Like I have a screenshot of it actually. It's like John Branch, the New York speaking of Twitter changing your life. Like I, I got a little notification, like New York Times Sports is now following you. Followed immediately. Like, you have a message from John Branch. And he's like, Hi, it's John Branch from New York Times. Like, would you guys be down to talk on the phone? And it was like pretty novel for us, right? It happened to be a rest day. We're like, holy shit, like <laughs> New York Times wants to write about rock climbing? Like, this is crazy. Like, sure. We've got 12 hours tomorrow. We're not doing anything. Like, we might as well <laughs> give this guy a call. Like, not thinking anything of it, right? Um, so we do it. And he writes the story. And he told me that, you know, it wasn't like just any other story. He thought it was cool. But he didn't have any sense that it was going to get any kind of mainstream attention. But as soon as they uploaded it to the website, it just got a ton of traffic. Like, clearly, it hit some kind of vein that no one predicted. And it just shot to the top of the most read list. But then it stayed there. So that's when he did a follow-up story. And at that point, then we got a call from, I think, Terry Gross at NPR wanting to do an interview. And we're like, oh boy, this is getting crazy. So at this point, we're like, and the incoming media requests just snowballed out of control, like overnight. You know, like every news station somehow got our email and was asking for interviews. So we kind of huddled up because we saw where this was going. It was going to be a distraction. And we just said, okay, outgoing only. You know, we had been posting to social media for years, you know, just sharing our, our process and our story and our climbing community really seemed to enjoy following along. So we did it as much for them as for ourselves. Um, so we were doing that this season, but then overnight you get, you know, another 10 or 20 or 30,000 followers when you didn't have any the night before. And you're like, what is going on? You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, this is crazy. So we decided, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll post one, you know, picture a day. We will forward all emails to somebody else. And it's just outgoing only one channel only, which was our Instagram accounts, which is basically to say, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing and nothing extra. So we, we took the NPR call and we shut down every other request, no phone calls, no emails, nothing. Like we, 
we continued doing what we had been doing with the Instagram stuff, but that was pretty much it. But, you know, there's usually nobody in Yosemite in the middle of January. You know, it's so cold down there. It's way nicer up in El Cap, it turns out, than it is on the valley floor. Like, there were days it was 60, 70 degrees up there. And then down on the valley floor, it's probably 10 degrees. So, but when you look down there and there's news trucks, you know, and there's a hundred people in the meadow freezing their, you know, butts off uh, in the middle of winter, it's just an odd sight to see. So all that stuff kind of snowballed and was like, wow, this is, this is something else. And John kept writing about it and, you know, soon enough, it just seemed to be everywhere. I think it's someone calculated it got like billions of media impressions or something like that at the end of the day. Just like, I don't know, media has, uh, you know, it's its own machine. And, you know, when a story gets tapped into that machine, it it goes to it goes everywhere, you know, and our, our story just happened to go everywhere. And that was not anything we uh, asked for or planned for. But, you know, it changed our lives in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, so you, so I'll skip the next X amount of pitches and you uh you know, to anybody that hasn't watched it, don't mean to spoil it, but they actually make it all to the top. And so a Twitter guy asked, after such a remarkable achievement and the resulting high, was there a point where y'all crashed? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call it a crash, but the the what's next question which we got tens of thousands of times is basically the only question anybody asked us <laughs> in interviews after the climb. But how do you answer that question after something like that? I think it's impossible. And it actually, we kind of, Tommy and I both just stopped trying to answer it, you know, because there's this, you know, I've, I've commented in the past, like whether we're talking about, you know, sports achievements or business achievements, we're really quick to you know, celebrate the headline and then immediately just look to the future. Like, well, how are you going to one-up that? How are you going to one-up that? And that approach to life, just it accepts that that's the equation that you have to live your life by, that everything has to be bigger, everything has to be better, everything, you're never, you've never arrived or this or that. And like, we got into this project with a very distant goal in mind, one that we never knew whether or not we would achieve. And really, it was, can we become the climbers that we need to be to do this? And if not, like, we're still going to be a lot better, you know, partners and climbers than we were when we started, and that'll be worth it. You know, it wasn't, let's do the hardest big wall free climb in the world or whatever, you know, and make a big media spectacle out of it. So just the way that it all came out, I think, implied a lot of our motivations about why we do what we do that without digging into why we do what we do or like what about those six years you guys spent preparing for this thing why did you do that toiling away in anonymity you know ex you know just in the small climbing community uh people couldn't really wrap their heads around that so you know i look at my relationship with climbing and and even life is one that you know unfolds in chapters you know and i'm just adding chapters ever so carefully as time goes on and the, the dawn wall was a chapter of big wall free climbing and i'm not going to top that i think tommy and i both accepted that this project is special it's what it's what captured our 
passion and attention and held it with, you know, laser focus for that many years. You don't come across that kind of opportunity or that kind of objective or that kind of relationship with a thing very often in life, if at all, you know? So to try to incrementally like just find something harder, I don't know. I kind of just want to appreciate the Donwall for the Donwall and be open to, just like I was after Ambrosia, like a next chapter of my climbing that maybe looks different than the one that I was just in. And right now that looks like expedition style climbing to more remote areas, you know? For a couple of years after the Donwall, I didn't want to do some groundbreaking hardcore shit. I'm an introvert <laughs> by nature. Like I didn't, I'm not like the most comfortable in this like public figure type role. You know, it's definitely not what we were aiming to achieve by climbing rocks. So kind of receding out of the limelight deliberately just to like reclaim my own relationship with climbing absent any expectations from the public, you know, and just like, yeah, I'm going to work on a project to, you know, free climb this thing over here or this thing over here in the valley that's nowhere near as hard as the Dawn Wall, but I care about it for my own reasons. You know, I want, this is an old Tom Frost classic. I talked to Tom down in the meadow. He told me the story of the first descent. It's never been freed. Like I love taking old lines that were aid climbed uh, in the fifties and sixties and bringing them into a modern era. And I do these things and nobody cares and that's fine. You know, like just like Alex, you know, no matter what he free solos after El Cap, like, no, they're not going to make an Oscar winning documentary about it. We talked about this around the campfire on the top of El Cap. He's like, oh, it's kind of frustrating. Like, it doesn't matter what I do after, after this. Like, it, there's, it, there is no topping that in some way. So the Dawn Wall was a reinvention. I think what I embraced is, you know, reinventions in other aspects of my life. You know, getting married, becoming a parent starting a business and then at the same time maintaining a healthy passion for and with my climbing but without the same like i have to go do something harder than a dawn wall and yeah not not forcing it so now you know the fire is for these big remote granite big walls out in baffin island and greenland and things like that and i'm excited to pursue that but will any will it hit the zeitgeist and go go global mains like no and that's that's okay because that's not why we were doing it from the beginning yeah in in one way you were given i mean you've accomplished something that is so incredibly it's so it's mind-blowing and it's kind of interesting that that happened to you you know at a relatively early age and, and the way you're thinking about it is like not everything has to surmount to the the dawn wall to live a successful life and i think especially in America, we live in a culture where it's, like you said, it's it's what's next, bigger, better, stronger, faster. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really yeah. cool outlook on things. I remember getting, you know, we Tommy and I had to learn how to become public speakers basically overnight after that climb, you know? And that, you know, if you've ever done any public speaking, like, it's hard, right? And it takes a lot of practice to get good at that stuff. But I remember being at some speaking gig, I think I was in Rome or something like that. And this guy sitting across the table, I don't even know what the event was at this point, but he was like, well, are you going to go back and do it again? <laughs> and I just remember like staring at him like, what? Why would I do that? He's like, oh, just to prove that it's not a fluke. 
And I'm like, still a blank <laughs> stare. And I'm just like, no, man. Like, I don't, I don't need that validation. <laughs> you know, that's not how I live my life. But there's so much pressure to live it that way, right? Especially when you know you're you're in a profession like being an athlete, and things are about scores and points on the board, and you know headlines and this and that. Like, it's uh, there's a lot of a lot of pressure to do that, but finding a way to strike a healthy balance with uh, expectation and ambition and passion and career, it's like, it's a lot to manage. Yep. All right. We've, uh, let's spend just some time. Um, and then you've been gracious with your time, but I do want to spend a little time on, on what's next and, and something I can relate a little more to, uh, yeah. you are developing, um, a rock climbing gym and you're learning about the joys of development and you've also created a very uh impactful nonprofit and and have started a family so let's just talk about kind of that part of your life and then um i'll ask you some fun personal questions and we'll we'll call it a day all right sounds good after the dawn wall i married my longtime girlfriend jackie and a couple of years later we we have our son edsel named after my grandpa He's two and a half now. He's just a fireball. He's so much fun. He's just like totally conversational now. And he's got so much energy. It's just a kick. Luckily, he's napping right now. Um, but <laughs> um, so, you know, I got my start in a climbing gym. And having traveled the world to these amazing climbing gyms, I always was a little bit jealous of the quality of these things compared to what my community had access to back home and out north of San Francisco in Sonoma County. So around late 2015, early 2016, I kind of made up my mind like, you know what? Screw it. Like, I'm going to build one of these things. Like, it can't be that hard, right? <laughs> like, I climbed the oh Don my God. It, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh yeah, shows you what I knew. Um, and the, but it's also oh appropriate that the punchline I remember using back then was, well, I know this is going to take a long time, but as long as it doesn't take as long as the Donwall, I'll be happy. Well, we are six months into construction, and it looks like our grand opening will be exactly six years after when I started working on this, which will be pretty much exactly like the Donwall. So karma has its way of uh, serving its justice for hubris. But yeah, I mean, the joys of development. I knew that I wanted to build something from scratch. You know, climbing gyms often uh, convert old buildings with various degrees of success. But I wanted something brand new, clean, modern, like really nice HVAC system, keep the air clear, keep it warm, keep it cool. Um, I just wanted to design every square inch of it. And that meant finding a piece of land and finding it. And I had no roadmap for this. You know, now I understand that it's like a very clear checklist <laughs> uh, <laughs> like this has been happening for decades and decades hundreds of years like there's a very clear way to go develop a piece of it. but i had no idea what i was doing right like this is like showing up on day one on the don wall it was just like i was totally out of my league but i love that stuff and i in many ways was as passionate about this objective as i was for ambrosia or for the don wall and the only outcome that I was going to accept was getting it done. And I didn't know, like the Donwall, to what degree or in what shape that hardship was going to show up. But I knew it was going to come. 
but it certainly uh, has arrived and has been a lot more challenging than I was expecting, for sure. And is it uh, is it a new take on climbing, or is it just your way of developing it? And is the goal to build one, or is it to build multiple? So it's not so much a, a, a new concept, really. It's just you know what, what climbing facilities have done. Climbing facilities are basically where fitness was 30 years ago, which is like everything under one roof. You know, you've got multiple disciplines. You've got the bouldering. You've got the ropes. You've got adult stuff. You've got kids stuff. You've got yoga. You've got regular weightlifting. You've got fitness classes. And it's like a health club centered around climbing as opposed to a health club that throws a climbing wall in the corner. Like climbing is is like the core activity, but you're surrounding it with amenities that help make it more appealing to that traditional health club member who wants the sauna, wants the nice clean surfaces, and they don't want it to smell like rental shoes. You know, they want a nice facility. So really, you know, when I was raising money, I kept saying like, this isn't new. It's just new for Sonoma County. You know, we've seen 500 copies of how this works in various markets all across the country. Like it's going to work here. And what's the name of it? And if anybody's listening that wants to look it up or get on a wait list for when it's opening, where where is it and what's its name going to be? So our North Star around why we wanted to build this was creating a space where community can grow. It's like building something that has gravitational pull to it. So often I feel like climbing gyms take credit for building community. And I think that that is a stretch. I think what climbing gyms do and a lot of various gathering spaces do is they create the opportunity for these collisions to happen between people for community to evolve and grow. And I love my climbing community here in Sonoma County. In many ways, it raised me through my teenage years, you know, and I wanted to create a place where everyone felt that when they came here, it was time well spent. You know, um, when someone is carving out time to come to your place, I think that's that says a lot. You know, forget what they're paying every month for the pleasure. It's when they're saying no to a date, no to dinner with family, because they value how they spend their time in your, your facility, that means a lot. So we named it to your question, Session, after this idea of like this North Star of time well spent, of carving out time for what matters most for you during the week and enjoying that. And if we're getting it wrong, you know, that, that notion of time well spent, we want to hear about it. We want to hear about it from our members. We want to hear about it from our staff, because I feel like if we if we get that right, we'll be successful, you know. And if we're getting it wrong, we'll know why, you know. We'll be able to diagnose it. But if we're not paying attention to the quality of experience that people are having in a facility like this, then um, you're not going to succeed. So we named it Session, and you can follow us on social media or find our website at just sessionclimbing.com. It's singular, not plural. People often mistake that, but yeah. So we called it Session, and I, I can't. I wish I could say that it's uh, felt like time well spent over the past six years of, <laughs> of real estate development. But um, I've loved the learning process. I will tell you that you know, from figuring out even what a developer is, you know, to negotiating a built-to-suit lease with that uh, person who has now become a friend and an investor in our business and 
going through the architecture phase and the entitlements and now in construction and design. It's just such a creative and collaborative process where the problem solving just never stops. And I love that about it. But I, to your, your other question, I do want to do a few more up here in the North Bay, but I don't think I want to do a ground-up development again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got a little too much scar tissue that needs to heal before um, I'm ready, ready for that kind of uh, project again. But I could see us doing you know, something that focused just on bouldering. Um, that's a pretty common way to develop a climbing gym as well, is forget the ropes, just do it for the bouldering only. And those are a lot easier to operate. They're a lot cheaper to build. They can, you can punch them out relatively quickly compared to development. And then I also, I really want to do something that's just like kid and family focused as well, that kind of fits into that family entertainment type business, but does it in a way that where a kid walks into it and it looks like a vertical playground for them to interact with. So we're, we're playing with that idea as well. I love it, man. Well, development's not for the faint of heart. And, uh, I have a huge heart for developers cause it's, it, it, it's, at it's core. It's managing a lot of different vendors doing a lot of different things, city governments and trying to get it all wrapped together for a final product. So yeah, we've, we've yeah, it's, You've done a fair bit of it, yeah, but have smartly focused to <laughs> just acquire as opposed to build. Yes, we've moved to just acquiring, not building. Um, there's a lot of risks that you can't control in development. Um, yes. It takes a lot of yes. patience. For sure. All right, last thing, and then a couple personal ones, but just give me a little bit of update of what's going on with your nonprofit. Uh, when we talked about it on our pre-call, it was, uh, it was a really cool thing that you're doing and, and I want people to know about it. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for circling back to that. This really is related to why I wanted to do a gym to begin with, which was I really just wanted to build the opportunities that I wish I had when I was younger. And I love the gym that I started climbing in, but it's nothing... I, gyms have changed so much in the last 20 years. So I was thinking about, you know, 11-year-old me walking into a climbing gym for the first time. What does that look like? What do I want that to look like for the kid who's just getting into it? And that's kind of why I'm going through the, the pain of doing a ground-up thing. Is I, I just want that to, I want it to inspire. I want it to on some levels, intimidate, you know, in a healthy way and just bring the best out of people. Um, and the same goes for a nonprofit. Like what opportunities um, do I want to create that I wish I had? I was lucky in that I lived in a neighborhood close to a climbing gym. So I became aware of it. My parents could afford it. And, uh, you know, without those two things, the proximity and the means, there's no way I would have ever gotten into the sport. You know, I would have been a monkey and still climbing on things, but it's a far cry from like getting into an actual sport. So cost and proximity barrier became a focus for me back in 2010. So I've been on this for 11 years now. And I was like, what would it take to introduce a million kids to climbing? Because I don't think it happens with just commercial climbing gyms, at least not very fast. So I was like, what, could, what would that even take? And what I what I stumbled on was, okay, well, if I need to break down the cost barrier and the proximity barrier, why don't I put this thing where kids already are, as opposed to trying to build something that they will come to, because that has its own cost and proximity challenges. 
So, well, where do kids spend their time after school? The Boys and Girls Club of America serves four and a half million kids a year. They have 4,000 locations. Seems like a pretty good starting point for building access to sport. So what One Climb does is we do just that. We design, build, install climbing walls in Boys and Girls Clubs around the country, and we create durable, long-lasting programs by partnering those Boys and Girls Club walls with the commercial climbing gym that's in town. And we only build these when those two units are relatively close to one another. Because what we want the climbing gym to feel like is that it's their sister facility. We really want them to bring it into the fold and and own it and take care of it and nourish it. Because the walls that we build for these kids, I don't want them to be too intimidating. You know, they're 20 feet tall, 25 at the most. They have auto belays on them, which means it's super easy for the staff to clip the kids in and out. Um, And pretty much, you know, most kids can find success on a wall like that. But if they really take a liking to it, they have the pathway to go to the commercial climbing gym for free and get the instruction and get the access and get the mentorship that they that they need to keep learning and keep enjoying the sport. So let's see, we've built, I think, 12 of them so far with three more going in. We've got two more going into Brooklyn and the Bronx this summer. And we've got one more. Uh, I haven't announced yet, but I think we're going to put it into West Oakland. Uh, off our first Bay Area location. But we have them all over the country. And I just love the mission so much. It means so much to me. This is something that I, it doesn't have a finish line to it. Like I can see myself working on this and I will be for the next, you know, 20, 30 years. There's just, you could literally build one of these in almost every city in, in the country if you had the money for it. Yep. That is so cool. Any idea how many kids you've impacted to date on your way to a million? Oh man, I don't. I mean, we've been trying to keep track and I know we have a rough number. Um, It's got to be in the tens of thousands now because each club will have anywhere from, you know, a couple hundred to a thousand members that will create access for the opportunity for them to try it if they want to. And we built one in Denver where it's actually part of a larger network where 10,000 kids will have the opportunity to experience that wall if they want to. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to keep chucking along and keep building those things because, um, climbing changes lives and it, it gives you whatever you need in life. Climbing is like a mirror and it gives you the opportunity to find it. You know, if it's confidence that you seek climbing gives you the opportunity to build it, you know, if it's focus that you need, climbing will demand it of you. And there are so many innate qualities to the activity that are good for kids and adults that simply by making it available does so much, let alone the programming that you can put on top of it. That is so cool. And you've obviously been blessed with an awesome platform to be able to help a lot of people. And um, yeah, I think that's awesome. And not to make it about me, but I I told you I had climbed my first rock uh, last week. And it was the first time I've ever rock climbed in my life. And uh, I've been telling people about it all week. It was absolutely incredible experience for someone that honestly, I was, you know, kind of skeptical going into it. So 
I can imagine that's what awesome. it's like. I can imagine what it's like for a young kid that's full of energy and time to keep practicing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we'll have to. Ro- I'm glad you got to rope up with Kevin out there in Boulder. We'll have to uh, make another road trip and get it on the calendar. Maybe further west this time and get you up on a on a wall in Yosemite, perhaps. I'm gonna climb with you one day. Deal? <laughs> yeah, man. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. All right. Three questions, and then I'll I'll let you go. You've been super generous. And maybe you've already answered it, but do you have a childhood experience? Maybe it was in a, like a one-time event or just maybe the way your parents raised you that kind of shaped who you are today? That's a great question. I don't know if it's so much a particular experience, but just a method of parenting that I think they adopted, which was they gave me a long leash as a kid. They really, I don't think I was like hyper rambunctious to the point where like they didn't have any control over it or any choice in the matter. But I think it was actually quite deliberate in that I didn't feel like I had really narrow bumper lanes on the risks I could take as a kid or the interests that I could express. And it allowed me to, you know, learn through living. Broke, broke a lot of bones, you know, in the hospital a bunch. Uh, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. and allowed me to find my passions. And it, it, I, I can't thank them enough for that. You know, I think it's important to have some bumper lanes around, especially uh, risk when it comes to raising a little one. And that's probably the hardest part you know, of parenting is knowing where to draw that line. But also letting him you know, explore his natural world. And I think growing up, spending so much time in the natural world in the beginning, it was uh, a lot of whitewater rafting and camping. And then much later became climbing, but just most of my childhood memories are around the campfire and in the tent and on the river and out hiking or out hunting or waking up at dawn and doing this or that. And having a connection and a a reverence for the natural world is probably the the gift i appreciate most from my childhood i love it all right do you have a morning routine or something that kind of starts your day you've been very vocal about loving the process of lots of things do you have a process for how you awake each day it ebbs and flows Honestly, and this is something that I need to probably get back on, especially now that I I actually just sustained a really nasty finger injury. So I'm not allowed to climb for three months. Um, So I got to, I got to get some new routines for my time that I would usually spend climbing. But for, for a couple of months there, I had a a routine that I love that I want to get back into, which was morning yoga. I've been doing the same sport for so long that my body's pretty been beat up in the same exact way for so many years that um you know it's hard to touch my toes but i can put my foot above my ear if i need to in a certain (laughs) move you know so like i'm flexible in all the ways that i need to be for climbing but like extremely imbalanced in a lot of other ways and um i also just really enjoy kind of that slow start to the morning and the consistency that it brings but Anyone that knows me knows that the the real answer to this is is coffee. That's probably the like the, the ritual I stick to the yeah. most is is my French press of coffee. But other than that, yoga is probably the one that I enjoyed the most recently, and and we'll be getting back to. 
All right. The final question. If uh, you were giving somebody that's just maybe thinking about climbing or maybe they've done a few and they're starting to get interest, but you had to get some advice to somebody that's, you know, getting into this, what advice would you give for a beginner climber? And I'm, a- and I mean, I'm asking for myself. I mean, I think the biggest thing is that it just has to be fun. I, there's such a push. We were talking about this topic earlier around progress and achievement and things like that. And it's so easy to make that the objective with anything that you do. And what's beautiful about climbing is that there is no scoreboard. There are no points. Success is how you define it. And that's what makes it so accessible to so many people. So if that allows you to define your relationship with it in a broad number of ways that maybe you can't with a basketball game that has a winner and loser at the end of every single one, you know? Um, so to keep it fun is just so important. And, and maybe that comes to top of mind for me because I've had to balance passion and career with it for so long. But um, I think it applies to our society's obsession with you know excellence and achievement as well like that those don't always go hand in hand with fun either and climbing is supposed to be fun it's childlike we've been doing it for eons you know it's it's a natural way of movement and it brings so many benefits to your your physical and mental health that if you're losing sight of why we're doing it to begin with it's because we enjoy it like ah what a shame so yeah keep it fun just keep it fun if you don't like climbing on a rope don't climb on a rope go bouldering you know like you don't have to (laughs) you know make it something that that it's not for yourself you know we're it's it's just rock climbing it's supposed to be fun keep it that way (laughs) all right i'm gonna take that because i'm gonna go to a climbing gym in fort worth here uh you've got some nice ones to pick from too yeah no we do there's there's one not too far from my house that i have my eye on so yeah. All right. Well, Kevin, I want to see some pictures. Ke- I will send you pictures. And uh, and Kevin, this has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I had hand sweating for half of it. They've they've dried up um, now, um, but this was great, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise. That was fun. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.